Coming up today, the fallout from the impending fall of Roe v. Wade. And we look back at four years of Europe's landmark data privacy law. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Matt Burgess. Hello. Natasha Bernal. Hello. And Grace Brown. Hello. This was the week when a global outbreak of monkeypox continued to gather pace, with more than 100 confirmed cases reported globally in a matter of weeks. Health officials in the UK are asking anyone who might have caught the disease to isolate at home for up to 21 days. This was also the week when billionaire businessman Elon Musk has denied claims he sexually harassed a flight attendant on a private jet in 2016, calling them wild accusations. It comes as Business Insider reported on Thursday Mr Musk's SpaceX paid $250,000 in 2018 to settle a sexual harassment claim from an unnamed private jet attendant who accused the Tesla founder of exposing himself to her. It was also the week when the UK data regulator fined face recognition company Clearview AI and told it to stop handling the data of UK citizens. Clearview has scraped more than 20 billion facial images from the web and is facing lawsuits in the US, Australia, Italy and more. And finally, it was the week when Pfizer released data that showed that their vaccine was 80% effective for children under the age of five. The company is now seeking authorization for this age group in the US. I normally have... Um, a fun follow-up question to someone's story for the week but I don't feel that we can touch the Elon Musk thing Matt Burgess's new story is about data privacy and we've got plenty of that on the show this week so Grace what possibly could we say about the effectiveness of the Pfizer vaccine in children under the age of five I guess we could we could look at the UK right where the vaccine uh, COVID vaccines at the moment are only authorized to kids down to the age of 12 is that right yeah, I think it's standing at 12 at the moment. There's only a few countries that are vaccinating under five at the moment, I think, and they're quite random countries. Um, I think Argentina and China is one of them. Um, but I guess if the US were to approve this vaccine, it would be a massive step in actually getting this age group, the final age group vaccinated, which would obviously be a massive step forward in terms of reaching some kind of semblance of an end of the pandemic. Yeah, I get it, it, difficult to say that it would be a final chapter because many people are still getting yeah. COVID very badly, getting long COVID. Many people are losing their lives. But in terms of millions and millions of people who might be able to be vaccinated and can't yet because the clinical trials haven't proven the effectiveness, we're now getting pretty close to a point where if countries wanted to vaccinate kids all the way down um, to well, one or, or birth, right? A vaccination at birth isn't completely out of the question. That's something that could soon happen. Yeah, definitely. All right. What did we learn this week then? Matt Burgess. I have learned something again that I'm going to make you all guess. Um, So this week I learned what country in the world has the most vending machines. Uh, Please, would you all like to take a guess at what country it is? And also as a bonus, uh, fun element, how many vending machines does the country have? Grace, your hand went straight up. I'm afraid I know the answer. Oh, I thought somebody (laughs) might know this. The answer is Japan. Is the answer Japan? The answer is the answer Japan. <laughs> the answer is Japan. Yes. Um, in, December 20, 
in December 2020, there were 2.7 million vending machines spread around Japan, which is around one for every 46 citizens, which is the highest density of anywhere. Very good. I love a good guessing game, especially when everyone knows the answer. But um, it's good to know that there's one for every 46 people in Japan. That's, that's impressive. What did you learn this week, Grace? So this week I learned about something called Shrek's Law, um, which is basically that despite increases in computer power, each Shrek movie has taken about twice as many hours to render as the one that came before it. So the original one took about 5 million rendering hours, Shrek 2 took 10 million, and Shrek the Third required 20 million. And yeah, that's led to DreamWorks Animation dubbing this Shrek's Law in reference to Moore's Law. So does there become a point at which the time it will take to render makes it almost impossible for DreamWorks to keep yeah. making terrible Shrek sequels. Yeah, yeah, basically. Good. Well, I mean, I like Shrek the original-ish. Yeah. Shrek 2 mm. is better. Shrek 2? Yeah. Nah. One of the best nah. sequels of all time. No, 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 no. uk. Shrek the original or Shrek the sequel, which is best? Please do let us know. Or Shrek the third. <laughs> Stop this. <laughs> Okay, so this next story will focus on abortion and miscarriage, which some listeners may find upsetting. If you would like to skip this segment, please fast forward about 20 minutes. So earlier this month, a leaked document showed that five conservatives on the nine justice US Supreme Court had voted to reverse their predecessor's ruling in Roe versus Wade nearly 50 years ago. The provisional ruling could lead to abortion being outlawed in more than half of US states unless it's changed substantially before becoming final in June. Grace, you have been one of our lead writers on the fallout relating to the upcoming decision and what this means for people, for people in the US and the future of women's rights. Since the decision was leaked by Politico, what has happened? So basically what's happened since is a lot of legal experts have been thinking about what are the knock-on ramifications of row falling. It's not just going to mean that abortion is outlawed, it's actually possibly going to have a ton of further ramifications all circulating around reproductive health care. Specifically, we know that various US states have very stringent abortion laws already. Specifically, 13 states have what are called trigger laws, which would ban uh, all or nearly all abortions immediately or very quickly if Roe were overturned. In many of these laws, life is defined very vaguely as beginning at the moment of fertilization, although the exact language differs from state to state. So that will basically mean that it'll have a ton of consequences for anybody who is trying to access any reproductive services in the US. So the decision making process uh, behind the um, sort of advice to overturn this was based on the Constitution, which was obviously written at a time where women didn't have rights and abortion was not necessarily a service that was granted through medical services. And it also was based on the flawed argument that the uh, US Supreme Justices uh, considered were involved in the case of Roe versus Wade, uh, which is that a woman's right to privacy meant that individual states could not impinge on that right to uh, sort of uh, Im- impose their, their decisions on abortion and their abortion access. Um, I suppose that the interesting thing about what might go on in the coming months in the US is that it's not just abortion and the right to have an abortion that will be affected by this decision, but also potentially many more reproductive services. Um, Could you tell us a bit more, Grace, about the kind of things that could change and could no longer be accessible from June onwards? So, yeah, um, in these states that have this very specific definition, it 
will not only outlaw abortion, it could also jeopardize access to certain forms of birth control, such as intrauterine devices or IUDs, as well as emergency contraception like Plan B. Um, And people are also worried that it's going to impair access to assisted reproductive therapy, specifically IVF. And then beyond that, um, I mean, it's going to probably affect basic healthcare needs such as caring for miscarriages or ectopic pregnancies and other life-threatening scenarios for mothers. Yeah, so in this in this sort of legislation change, it's basically putting everyone in one bucket, right? Saying if you would like to have an abortion, we don't want to let you, uh, regardless of, of what happens. But also there's problems with um, access to measures to stop pregnancy from happening in the first place. So let's let's talk a bit more about contraception. So many women have IUDs or they take the morning after pill, which is called Plan B in the US. That option may no longer be available. Why is that? So for a long time, pro-life or anti-abortion activists, going off this definition of life beginning at the moment of fertilization, have argued that certain forms of contraception are actually drugs that induce abortion, um, if we're to take this interpretation. This is despite the fact that scientists do not accept this definition very widely. IEDs and emergency contraception actually work by preventing pregnancy, um, by stopping the eggs from being fertilized or from being released, uh, rather than actually interacting with the eggs after they've been fertilized. But going off this definition that they use, this very strict definition, um, some of the legal scholars I spoke to are really worried that these anti-abortion politicians are going to use Roe falling as an opportunity opportunity to push for further restrictions on contraception. Mostly we're probably going to see these in uh, states in the Midwest and the South. And we're actually already starting to see some of these states starting to make moves. Um, at the beginning of May uh, in Louisiana, some politicians are trying to pass a bill that would effectively outlaw IUDs. And Nebraska had previously tried to pass a bill, um, but it had failed previously. But people are worrying now that they're going to call an emergency session this summer to also pass a bill that would effectively outlaw uh, contraception methods like IUDs and Plan B. So aside from precautions to avoid getting pregnant in the first place being eroded, there are also really major consequences for people who actually are trying to have a baby but have been unlucky. Um, this this is something that, that isn't just a situation that has taken place in the US, but we've seen it in other countries as well, right, where, where there's stringent abortion laws in place that make it very difficult to access services when a mother needs to access those services because her pregnancy is not viable. Uh, one of the things that you, that you mentioned in your, in your last story about this was a woman in Ireland who died as a result of not getting treatment because she was pregnant. Um, can, can you explain sort of why, why that's an important part of this as well? Yeah, so obviously the US will not be the first country to outlaw abortion. Um, there are still several countries where abortion is legal like Malta previously Ireland um and yeah in in one of the pieces I wrote about how this is going to affect miscarriage care kind of the 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 most famous example of this um was a woman called Savita Halapanavar who back in October 2012 um Savita who was a 31 year old dentist died unnecessarily in Ireland because her doctors refused to terminate her pregnancy uh basically what happened was Savita was 17 weeks into her pregnancy she was admitted to hospital in Galway uh while she was experiencing miscarriage but in Ireland where the 
Eighth Amendment was still in action, um, which recognizes the equal right to life of a pregnant person and their unborn child. It meant that her doctors were afraid of being accused of breaking the law if they were to treat her. The, the standard of care would have been to end the pregnancy in order to save Savita's life because she was suffering from septicemia, from the, the tissue remaining in her body. Um, and basically it meant that a week later Savita died and it's likely that we're probably going to see more cases like Savita in a post-Roe America. A lot of people would find the situation and do find the situation appalling, right? You would think that if you need medical help and you are at risk of dying, that medical professionals would help you and mm. would help to save your life. Um, the consequences, though, for helping women in these scenarios are quite tough for medical professionals already. Uh, but, but under Roe, um, if, if that were to be disqualified as, as a way of helping women, they could be prosecuted, right, if they dared to help someone who is suffering a miscarriage. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like we saw in the case of Savita, um, it's going to mean that doctors are not following the standard of care. So I'll give a little background as to what happens when someone is suffering a miscarriage, uh, which is basically defined as the spontaneous loss of a pregnancy before the 20th week. Um, so typically a person will be offered three options by their caregiver. They are offered medication to cause the tissue to pass, pass out of the womb. Um, they can go for a surgery or known as a DNC, which basically would also remove the tissue from the uterus. Or there is a third option, which is the option that Savita's doctors went for, which is basically just to sit tight and watch for signs of danger while the tissue passes. But there is no, um, it, this, it differ, differs a lot for different people how long that takes for the tissue to pass. Sometimes it can take weeks. And so that leads to a lot of complications. Um, so the standard of care really is to terminate the pregnancy. And in, in more recent years, that standard of care has been um, with medication. Uh, but yeah, basically in these states that have the, the trigger laws, um, it would really, the, the way that they define allowing for ending a pregnancy in the case of a miscarriage, they would allow for that under circumstances where the pregnant person's life is at risk. Um, but really where, where we're going to run into trouble is that definition is just so vague and it's going to be up to the doctor to decide. And it's really this vagueness that will mean that medical professionals will have to decide whether to terminate a pregnancy all the while knowing that the penalties for calling a case too soon or maybe it doesn't fit perfectly into this risk criteria, it's going to mean that they're facing you know, massive fines. It can range up to 100,000. They could be suspended or their medical license be revoked or they could even face a life sentence in prison. And one of the, one of the doctors that I spoke to was re-asking some key questions like, well, how the hell does the doctor even define what, um, you know, a, a person's life being at risk means? Like, does it mean that they're going to die within the next hour? Do they have to have a 50% chance of dying or a 70% chance of dying? And does dying even have to be the qualifier? What if, you know, carrying the pregnancy to term meant that the patient didn't die, but would have severe disabilities as a result? And one thing they also pointed out was, like I mentioned before, the standard of care is now medication. Uh, the medication option involves two drugs called mesoprostol and mifeprostone. Um, and 
one thing that they pointed out is that these drugs are also the drugs that are used to induce an abortion. So really, we're wondering, will doctors even consider giving them to patients? And even will pharmacies stock them? Um, or will they be too worried that someone will think that they're doing something illegal? Uh, there's already reports of pharmacies in Texas refusing to pres- fill prescriptions for these drugs. Um, and like I mentioned, Texas, where they re- recently passed a very stringent abortion law called Senate Bill 8, um, we're starting to see some of the effects that allowing abortion could have for women. There was uh, one story that NPR reported on about a woman called Anna, who um, at the end of last year in December, Anna, who lives in central Texas, was 19 weeks pregnant when her waters broke on her wedding night. It was too early in her pregnancy for the baby to have a chance of survival, but not, it meant that not only was Anna going to lose her child, which obviously must have been a very, very difficult situation to be in, she was also at a high risk of going septic or bleeding out, her doctors told her. But because of the strict abortion laws that had taken effect in September in Texas, um, her doctors told her that basically they couldn't terminate the pregnancy or else they would face prosecution. Uh, so it meant that Anna had no choice but to get on a plane to Colorado to a nearby state to receive care. And she talked about in the piece how she booked front row seats to be close to the bathroom in case she went into labor on the flight. And like, we're going to see situations like that in a post row America, like just such terrifying circumstances where a person is going to have to get on a plane or drive for eight hours just to receive basic medical care. There's been um, states in the US that have said, you know, if women are able to cross the border, we will provide abortion services. Um, Canada has said the same. If if women are able to cross the border, we will help you. But, But obviously this option isn't available to everyone. Anna's um, obviously very brave for taking a plane by herself and it's a very risky option. But there are plenty of people who can't afford to take a plane out of state um, or out of the country to save their own lives. Um, And and also the thought of of someone, you know, who's suffering a potentially life-threatening miscarriage, having to take a plane by themselves is a a super risky business. Um, And and an important point here is that even if they do survive, this doesn't mean they won't face prosecution or, or legal action themselves if they decide to come back. Right. That's that's one of the big consequences of this, that it is criminalised to the point where you could be prosecuted when you go back home after the fact. Yeah, exactly. One of the, the doctors I spoke to made the point that when um, uh, an abortion is induced and the pregnancy ends and when a miscarriage happens and the pregnancy ends, they are basically they look the exact same, like a doctor would not be able to tell the difference between the two. So there's a worry that it could be the case that doctors start to become suspicious of their patients. And there's already been reports of women who have gone in seeking care for their uh, miscarriage and doctors have become suspicious that they induced the abortion themselves. And then obviously when we think about how race and socioeconomic backgrounds will affect affect this, it's going to become a very divisive issue. And Another thing that's worth considering is that in the US, um, the Catholic Church has a very strong monopoly on the healthcare system, um, which is something that was very surprising to me in reporting this story. Um, A crazy statistic is that one in six acute care hospital beds are in a Catholic hospital in the US, and out of the 10 largest health systems, four of them are Catholic owned. And why this is worrying, as it was the case in uh, like Civitas, um, Catholic healthcare facilities in the US are governed by a code of conduct called the Ethical and Religious Directives, which basically mean that 
aborting a pregnancy only becomes permissible if fetal heart tones are not present or the pregnant person becomes ill. So that means that doctors are going to be forced to abide by this watch and wait method, which is obviously the more dangerous option to take. Um, And this has already meant that people who are seeking care at these institutions have been denied critical care that they need. Um, And so when we think about the sheer density of Catholic hospitals in the US, it means that women are going to have to travel significant distances to receive care at a non-Catholic facility, potentially all the while suffering a miscarriage. Um, And combine that with the fact that 35% of counties in the US are already identified as maternity care deserts, which are counties with no hospital adequately staffed to provide care for pregnant people. I mean, the situation just becomes even more terrifying. Yeah, so a huge amount of mistrust that would be from patients to their own doctors because you don't know whether they will believe that you're having a proper miscarriage or that you are inducing it yourself, Um, problems travelling and problems with contraception. But there's another area that we haven't touched upon which I want to do next, which is taking away autonomy from people who would like to have children and could not do so by natural methods. I'm talking about people who would like to undergo IVF to have their children. Um, for, For example, people who are suddenly faced with a situation where selective reduction is not an option. So let's say um, you have implanted several eggs, um, several of them are viable, but it is not safe to have all of the children that you could have had and therefore you select to have only a percentage of them, uh, one rather than three, three rather than five, that sort of thing. Um, And also people who have faced a situation where they might have frozen their eggs or frozen their embryos for future use uh, and might find themselves falling foul um, should Roe be overturned. What happens to all of these people? Yeah, it's one part of the puzzle that is going to be very, very um, interesting to watch play out because obviously IVF um, is kind of antithetical to abortion. You know, people undergo IVF because they want children, but under in a post-Roe America, what that will mean for IVF treatment is actually very unclear. Um, because like you said, the entire process of IVF is predicated on some kind of embryo disposal, like selective reduction. You know, it's very, very dangerous to carry five children rather than three children, rather than one child. Um, And also, like you said, a person who has frozen embryos, which a lot of women, I think it's something like one million women in the US have some embryos frozen. They typically have three options with what they want to do with those frozen embryos. They can discard them, they can donate them for research, or they can donate them to another couple, which is called embryo adoption, or sorry, embryo donation. Um, And this is the approach most favoured by the pro-life movement. Um, But it's the former, the discarding or the donating them to research. You know, if, if it is the case that you have 11 embryos frozen, you don't want 11 children and you just want to have them destroyed or maybe like you said not all of them are viable um that is the approach that's going to be really under threat um if roe falls in the us um one of the legal experts i spoke to mentioned that in these states where they define life as beginning at the moment of fertilization it it means that a frozen embryo is going to have the same rights as a, a kindergartner um and 
it will mean that people will be probably forced to store their embryos in perpetuity, which is not a cheap process. It can cost as much as $1,000 a year. Put that on top of how much IVF, IVF itself already costs. And it's going to mean that fertility treatments will just be harder to obtain for marginalized groups for whom access is already very difficult. Um, and one of the legal experts I spoke to pointed out the psychological toll of these various scenarios where it would basically mean that your state is deciding what is best to do with your embryos. And she advised that if you do have embryos frozen in a state that has this trigger law in place, then if you can get them out because you just don't know what's going to happen come June, we don't know what's going to happen to those embryos. We'll include a link to Grace's most recent story on Roe versus Wade in the show notes. And there's a bunch of really, really important coverage about this issue on wire.com and we'll continue to cover it in the weeks and months to come. Our second story this week, Matt Burgess, is about GDPR, which four years ago this week came into the world. And what a thrilling four years it's been. So this week, you were tasked to task with taking a look back at what the regulation has achieved and where it's come up short. It is the story you were born to write, Matt Burgess. So what's the verdict? It's uh, truly my most uh, favourite topic of all. But in the last four years, GDPR has really been a bit of a mixed bag. So there are, GDPR has made huge changes to how businesses work. Companies have hired teams of people to evaluate and change how they handle people's personal data and think about privacy. There's a much bigger awareness of privacy and data protection issues than there has ever been before. Um, this is both by the general public and also by companies. And there have really been immeasurable improvements in the way that people's data is handled altogether. But on the flip side, some of the worst online practices are still happening. Big tech hoovers up people's personal data all the time. Data brokers and the online advertising industry are constantly tracking what people do online and what they're buying and how much data they can really collect to track and profile people, really. So um, it has seen a lot of improvements, but there's also a lot still to do. I was really expecting you to come down definitively on one side of the line and either say that GDPR is absolutely rubbish or absolutely brilliant. Um, so this compromised view is, is not one I get on with. But let's rewind those four years back to the moment where GDPR arrived, because it isn't just cookie consent pop-ups and blocks on Europeans being able to access obscure US local news websites for strange reasons. This was a really big landmark piece of legislation that was meant to tackle online privacy from lots of different angles. So where did it come from? So GDPR has been one of uh, Europe's flagship regulations in recent years. It's been uh, Europe essentially putting a marker down and saying people's privacy, people's data matters. Uh, it's only really been sort of like not replaced in any way, but sort of like the scale of regulation has only been replicated in the last uh, few months, really, with the passing of the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act, which deal with um, not personal data, but other areas of business and what companies can't can and can't do. And GDPR has really sort of inspired other countries around the world to copy its copy the regulation, really. Um, so the idea for the data protection 
protection reform was first proposed back in January 2012. And for a bit of context, that was the year that the iPhone 5 was released. And it was also the year that Facebook bought Instagram and went public. So the web was very, very different at that time. Um, And after a few years of debate, GDPR finally passed in 2016 and then came into force four years ago this week, which was the 25th of May 2018. And there was a sort of like two year buffer period for companies to really get ready uh, for the implementation of the law. And in its essence, GDPR really builds upon uh, previous data regulations. It gives uh, individuals more rights and alters how businesses must handle people's personal data, which is a wide ranging definition and can range from your name to your IP address. Um, And GDPR itself doesn't necessarily ban the use of data in certain cases. So it doesn't ban uh, the intrusive use of facial recognition technology by police. Instead, it has seven principles that sit at its heart and guide how data can be handled, stored and used. And these principles essentially apply to any industry. So they apply to charities and governments and equally as they do to pharmaceutical companies and big tech. And one of the crucial things about GDPR when it was passed and even now is that it weaponized these principles and essentially handed uh, each European data regulator the ability to fine or uh, fine companies potentially huge amounts, up to 4% of a global revenue, and then also to stop practices that violate GDPR's principles. And in theory, um, and in many ways, um, ordering a company to stop handling people's data may be uh, more impactful than issuing fines because it stops the process altogether. And it was never likely that GDPR fines and enforcement were going to flow really quickly because these cases are complicated. But essentially, four years down the line, the number of total major decisions against the world's biggest, most powerful data companies, including Facebook, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, etc., remains agonizingly low, really. Now, one of the people that you spoke to for this story is a guy called Romain Robert, who's the program director at a non-profit called NOYB. And Robert's story and the story of NOYB and its tussles with GDPR are kind of indicative of the regulation's wider failings. They made a complaint years ago and it's still stuck in a bureaucratic maze. Yeah, so literally on the first day of GDPR coming into force, NOIB, which might be pronounced NOIB, but I'm not really sure um, because I've never heard anybody say it out loud. So I'm just going to stick with NOIB. Uh, they fired off their first GDPR complaints on the very first day that came into force. And some of these included complaints against Google, WhatsApp, Facebook and Instagram for essentially uh, they claim uh, giving up made people give up their data without giving consent properly. Um, And essentially, these cases are still ongoing. Four years later, there aren't decisions. There are some partial partial decisions in the cases, but they've been dragging on for years and there aren't any uh, good answers to it. And there are many other cases like this, really. So the launch of GDPR led to a large amount of complaints and regulators are still catching up and handling them. And on top of that, some of the cases against big tech companies are taking years. There are cases with years-long delay against Facebook, all of the Facebook companies, Google, Netflix, Spotify, and more. And at the same time, you've obviously got these companies uh, innovating very quickly, moving uh, very fast with their development and how they handle data. So some of the complaints will probably be uh, essentially uh, out of date by the time that regulators even start looking at them or looking at the practices. Um, and much of the sort of frustration with GDPR from civil society comes down to the way that GDPR is being enforced. So uh, within the sort of like very uh, dense legal text, uh, it's set up that if there is an international company, so lots of the big tech companies, but all of other companies that operate in multiple different uh, 
countries across the EU, uh, they have to designate essentially where uh, their European headquarters is and that country's data regulator looks after um, all the complaints against them. So this is a process that's called the one-stop shop and uh, basically the little nation of Luxembourg regulates Amazon, the Netherlands regulates Netflix and Ireland is responsible for Google, Meta, LinkedIn and a host of other firms. And this one-stop shop mechanism process piece of regulation essentially means that uh, those regulators have to look at those complaints that are made about those companies and then also once their investigations are done negotiate the sort of like final decision with all of the other regulators and this really takes a lot of time there's a lot of back and forth a lot of disagreement around this and that process is essentially quite bloated and takes quite a while um so that is one of the big frustrations with this and really there are a bunch of inconsistencies with how gdpr is applied in individual companies so to give one example um critics say there isn't one common form for people to make complaints. So if I was to file a complaint in Luxembourg, the the way that I do so would be very different to if I filed it in Poland, for instance. And that just causes problems when complaints are passed around and handled across different regulators. We've covered the flaws in that one-stop shop mechanism quite a bit over the last several years. You've got big, powerful company uh, countries like Germany um, pointing the finger at Ireland and going, come on, guys. And it, you would have thought that this was a flaw that would have been identified when the text was being drafted, that the enforcement of this huge piece of legislation was inevitably going to fall on the very small countries that have very generous tax arrangements for big multinationals that want to headquarter there, Ireland, Luxembourg, um, the Netherlands. Um, So you could kind of see this coming. But despite all of that, there have been some successes, right? And it's wrong, as you outlined very even-handedly at the start, to frame GDPR as a total failure, even if it might be a bit too easy to poke fun at it. It definitely, definitely hasn't been a total failure at all. So I would argue that just the enforcement side of things, and particularly on big international cross-border cases, many of them involving uh, big tech, that has been the biggest failure. Um, But even now, four years in, action is slowly starting to ramp up. So the number of fines has increased uh, as the legislation has aged, hitting a running total of around 1.6 billion euros in total fines. The biggest of these has been Luxembourg fining Amazon 746 million euros uh, and also Ireland finding WhatsApp 225 million. Uh, Both of those happened last year. Both of those are being appealed uh, and are likely to drag on for quite a while. Um, And as part of the reporting for this story, I spoke with regulators from uh, Ireland, the UK, France, Germany, and a host of other countries across Europe. And they say that GDPR, in their opinion, is generally working. Um, Although obviously asking them this question is a bit like asking them to mark their own homework um but they also aren't uh, but they also acknowledge that it could be better overall i like that that regulators marking their own homework go a plus just an outstanding job we're very pleased with how we're doing um but i think what you say tallies right there are big fines being issued against companies for violations that we knew were wrong before but we didn't have the tools to go after them um, and hold them to account. And you mentioned right at the top of the show um, the sort of ongoing lawsuits against Clearview AI. And I wanted to touch on the successes that we don't see because we might not necessarily recognise the backlash against Clearview as being linked to GDPR, 
but you could argue that it is, right? So it's really shifted attitudes to online privacy. People are more aware of it. Companies are perhaps more afraid of making slip-ups and that wider change in attitude is harder, impossible to measure, but it's definitely an important part of GDPR's wider impact on the web and how we all think about our data and online privacy. Definitely. I think that with uh, an instance like this, obviously, um, it's easy to look at fines and big enforcement action and uh, the, the decisions that are taken against big companies in particular, because they obviously impact the most people. But it's really hard to sort of like measure the overall effectis- effectiveness of GDPR because uh, the data regulators, to, to their credit as well, they're all, it, their job isn't just uh, regulate, regulating against big tech. They're doing a lot of things to work with businesses, speak with businesses about how they handle data and sort of like how uh, companies really do sort of like work and evolve in this space. And uh, we have seen over recent years that companies have been put off using people's data in dubious ways uh, when maybe they wouldn't have thought twice about it pre-GDPR. So one very recent study estimated that the number of Android apps on Google's Play Store has dropped by a third since the introduction of GDPR. Uh, and they essentially cite better privacy privacy protections among other things and a lot of the apps that uh, or many of the apps that you see sort of being uploaded to uh, the play store can be clones or have slightly dubious data practices so it feels like it's weeded out some of those uh, apps in that instance and last year facebook stopped its um, facial recognition system on for tagging people in photos all around the world. But before this, it actually made it already opt-in for people in Europe, whereas everybody else around the world was essentially, uh, it was on by default. So that's another sort of like smaller change that maybe people weren't that aware of to begin with. Um, And also EU countries are made decisions in thousands of local cases and issue guidance to organizations to say how they should use people's data. So Spain's uh, La Liga Football League was fined after uh, its app spied on users. Uh, the retailer H&M was fined in Germany after it saved details about employees' personal lives. And the Netherlands uh, tax body was fined over its use of a blacklist uh, of potential um, people that were uh, avoiding fraud. Um, and these are just sort of a handful of successful cases, really. The decisions sort of trickle down. There was a recent case um, in Austria where um, the regulator said that the use of Google Analytics may be unlawful due to many complicated reasons about data transfers. And really, one lawyer I spoke to said that that individual case in Austria has led to lots of questions from uh, the companies that they work with about how they use Google Analytics or other analytics proper. Website analytics properties as well, and really sort of like this wouldn't have happened in the past. All right, so I'm a data regulator marking my own homework again. A plus, great work, well done, me. But big tech is still big tech, right? It's fast, it's wildly profitable, and these profits are all built on mostly built on our data, which is fine to a degree. Companies are allowed to make a profit, that's how the world works. But it isn't necessarily all above board, as we've seen with Clearview AI and a bunch of other scandals at companies big and small over the years. And up against all of that, we've got plucky little GDPR, which is very slow. Regulation generally is very slow and big tech generally is very fast. So has GDPR changed, quote unquote, big tech? Or has it simply made big technology firms meta- Google, Amazon, Microsoft, etc. More powerful. 
This is probably a very tough one to answer. And I would probably say that as with lots of these things, it isn't in um, one silo. So the changes around people's personal data that companies might make are also linked to business decisions and sort of competition decisions and lots of other areas. But the regulators and people that I spoke to who are not regulators and third parties and civil society and other uh, groups that have been watching GDPR very closely generally say that big tech has improved somewhat. But there is there are caveats against this, and it's only really to a certain extent. And for a couple of examples, for instance, last year, uh, a wired investigation re- revealed that Amazon's handling of people's data is uh, a pretty much a mess uh, internally. And very recently, uh, Vice's mother board published an internal document from Facebook that showed that en- showed engineers talking about how they didn't really have control over data. And quoting one document from Facebook, it said, uh, "We do not have an adequate level of control." and explainability over how our systems use data and thus we can't confidentially uh, or confidently make controlled policy changes or external commitments such as we will not use x data for y purposes that document said um, facebook denied this is the case but the picture is very much when you've got big companies with huge amounts of volumes of data um, then there are gonna be challenges in sort of organizing it and making sure you know what you've got and where it is so you've pointed out that the enforcement side of GDPR, kind of the the way that the regulation is structured is one shortfall. So maybe another shortfall of GDPR is that it needs to be more effective against big technology companies. So what needs to happen for GDPR to more effectively take on big tech? I think in short, we can probably say that there needs to be more enforcement against big tech and it needs to happen quicker. But getting to that isn't necessarily straightforward. Uh, in the last year, there have been growing calls to change how GDPR works. So one of the actual uh, originators of the legislation said that enforcement should be more centralised for big affairs. Um, so there should be a European body potentially that could um, enforce uh, and, and coordinate um, big GDPR cases where lots of countries are involved to try and smooth over the process. Like That would be quite tricky to actually implement because of how the law is written and people's rights apply in individual countries where they're based. But um, the European Data Protection Board, which is a body that um, all national regulators are signed up to and exist to sort of coordinate GDPR, is becoming a lot more active as well. It's introducing international task force and other measures on some cases going forward. Um, And that could make a difference. Some people are sceptical of it. Um, Some people say that the European Commission, which obviously, as well as proposing the European laws is also exist to make sure that member states and countries apply them correctly. There have been suggestions that the European Commission should come down harder on individual countries that seem to be um, having backlogs of cases. And those instances are um, like the European Commission has essentially said that it that doesn't have a problem with GDPR enforcement at the second and where it is, but it's always looking at these things and there's appeals and inquiries going on into the European Commission's role in this as well. Um, But I think that there's little appetite really to amend or reopen GDPR itself because it's a big piece of legislation. It would open it up to a huge can of worms and lots of uh, decisions going on for a very long time. But people that I spoke to also say that a small amendment that just applies to GDPR could potentially help. So um, the legislation could, uh, a new piece of legislation, which is small, uh, could ensure that 
data protection authorities handle complaints in the same way. They could uh, clearly set out how the one-stop shop should work uh, rather than sort of like it being developed as it goes along. And they could also make sure that procedures in individual countries are the same. So I think that those are some things that could be smaller changes that could do this. And there is some appetite from some of the regulators that I spoke to, to make these type of changes. But beyond that, I think as well, sort of like the regulators essentially need um, more resources. Like you've got small countries in some of these cases, you've got countries with um, a couple of hundred staff looking at thousands of complaints from across their own uh, organize, uh, their own country. And then they're also looking at big tech cases. And really while they're doing that, the people that they're investigating, the companies that they're investigating have got tens of thousands of staff in some cases that know their systems, have access to the data and have a lot more technical expertise in some instances. So I think that there is that bit of an imbalance there that could be sort of ironed out as well. And really, uh, I guess to sum it up in the way that I started it, there's probably not a really easy answer. It's one thing that GDPR has had successes. There are other things that have been failures, but I think that it needs to improve quite a bit to really make sure people's rights are uh, upheld across Europe. I'll include a link to Matt's very detailed investigation into four years of GDPR in the show notes. And I, I really cannot stress enough how much Matt Burgess enjoyed working on that story. And Matt, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking through it. You can now forget all about GDPR, at least for a couple of days. Um, we should also note that um, we're recording this podcast a little earlier in the week than usual. It's the 24th of May. Um, and as we were recording, everyone's in different bits of London. Quite a violent thunderstorm has rolled across the city. So if there were any ominous rumbles of thunder, it had nothing to do with Matt Burgess talking about GDPR. Um, it was just the rotten English weather. That's it for us this week. Thanks so much for listening. As always, we'll be back again same time next week. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye.